says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's glorious, kind revelation given to us. May we listen to it this morning. The theme of this passage is divisions are a threat to the church, but more importantly, a threat to the gospel and its proclamation. Divisions, most importantly, are a threat to the gospel and its proclamation. And the way that they threaten the gospel and its proclamation is by threatening the church. So we want to look at that this morning uh, here in 1 Corinthians. This letter is a real letter written to a real church filled with real Christians with real problems. Sometimes when we read the Scripture, or we hear the Scripture preached, we sometimes separate it as if we're watching a movie that doesn't really indicate reality. It's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's outside of the realm of possibility. But we, when we read the Scripture, need to, to the best of our ability, put ourselves into the situation that is being addressed. How do we do that? Sometimes it can be a challenge, but here it should make it should be easier. So can you imagine being in the church at Corinth, and on Sunday morning, up stands one of the elders, and they say, we have received a recent communication from the Apostle Paul that we will read this morning. And he unfolds the scroll, or however it was, the letter, and begins to read this. And as he begins to read, he has the nice greeting, the grace and peace, and everyone's happy. We like grace and peace. We, we pray for that. And then, and then he's thankful for them, and they're just glowing. They've, they're gifted. They're wonderful. They've got all of these things. And then he gets to this portion of the letter, and he says, I have heard a report that some of you are doing this. And then all of a sudden, the eyes drop. People are staring at their sandals. Trying to wonder, you know, did, did someone know it was me? Or who, all of a sudden, they know what faction they're in. They know what group they're a part of. All of a sudden, you can hear the tension. You can feel the tension and hear a pen. Do you, can you sense that? So we need to hear it as if we are these people with this problem. So the weight of it will settle down on us in a way that instead of this. Well, praise God, we don't have that at our church, and we'll never have that at our church, and so we're just happy not to be those people. We cannot hear the Scripture like that, or we will miss the weight of it. We might not see this problem in our church. We might not have this problem in our church, but we need to feel the weight of its warning, if not its correction, fully. So we don't want to get to a place where we have this problem and so we need to hear this as a warning today that we would never get to this place by God's grace. Now, in the title, you'll see it's Divisions in the Church, Introduction. And I call this the introduction because as Paul addresses the first internal problem in the church at Corinth, it appears that after going through verse 17, he gets to verse 18, it appears that he gets sidetracked with very important theological truths and covers those for a chapter and a half, and then in chapter 3, he gets back to the idea of divisions. You can kind of see that. That's how I read this previous to this week. 
that Paul, like every good preacher, starts to write on one theme, finds other good themes and kind of goes off, but then he comes back to it because he gets back to the main point. But that is not how to read this. In fact, the best way to read this is that Paul's entire argument and correction to this problem of division is introduced here, and his argument continues through all the places that might look like rabbit trails to us. Paul here in these first seven verses is just introducing the topic, which is why it's an introduction. His argument starts at the end of 17, moving into 18 and beyond. He then gets more specific with the application in chapters 3 and still talks about it in chapter 4. So from here, verse, chapter 1, verse 10, to the end of chapter 4, he's dealing with this entire section is about division in the church, why it's there, what its problems are, and how to handle it. And so I had missed that in my own study, in my own understanding, so hopefully this will help you, will help us to get it better and understand it better and see, and see theological connections to real-life problems and the importance of theology as it bears on all things and so the first thing we see in chapter 1, verse 10, is the Apostle Paul pleads for unity. He pleads for unity. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you is a plea. Because the Corinthians are questioning Paul's authority, he begins with an appeal rather than a command. In other places, as he writes letters, he will be stronger. He'll be more direct. But he starts with an appeal because later we'll see it in different ways. The Corinthians are struggling with how authoritative is Paul? Is he the most authoritative? Is someone else more authoritative? And so he starts in a gentle way of pleading with them because they're already questioning, at least some of them, his authority. And if he just comes at them real heavy, throwing his authority out front, he might not get a very good response. And so in wisdom, he starts with an appeal. The grounds of his appeal is where he begins. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. What he's saying in this is that they are one spiritual family. They are brothers in Christ. Now, this can be translated, and some of you might have that, brothers and sisters. It's not just talking about men here. It's talking about the family relationship. It can speak to men on some occasions, but in this context, it's brothers and sisters, men and women. We are all brothers in that sense in Christ. There is one spiritual family. And in this church, with divisions, Paul reminds them in the very language he uses that they are one in Christ. They are one family. They are related in Christ. And they have, in Christ, one Lord. The one Lord Jesus Christ. So he appeals to the brothers by the name of Jesus Christ. By the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who rules, that Jesus Christ. And there's only one Christ who rules. And he comes to them in the name, singular name, singular Lord. It's all singular. They are one. They are one family in the Lord Jesus Christ. They need to be reminded of those theological things because they are being pulled apart by division. And in his appeal then, he says, right at the beginning here, I appeal to you that here's what he wants them to do. He pleads for unity. He pleads for unity that all of you agree. So what's the meaning of unity? The reason we need to talk about the meaning of unity because unity is something that is thrown around all the time. It's thrown around in churches. It's thrown around in civil society. 
How many of you have heard over the last two or three years, our nation is the most divided it's ever been? We need to unite around. We need to come together around. You hear this kind of language in multiple places in multiple things. So in this context, when Paul pleads that they all agree, we need to know what that means. What is unity? What does it look like in the local church? What does it look like in the body of Christ? Because many of you have been around long enough to have heard pleas for unity in the larger body of Christ, among denominations, among different peoples. How do we have unity? What is unity? So the first thing Paul says, as we try to understand unity, is that all of you are to agree. And that phrase, you all agree, could be translated that you all say the same thing, that you all speak the same thing. So some of you in the King James or the NIV would see that indicated, that all of you speak or say the same thing. That's what it means to agree. So all of you agree means all of you say the same thing. And so that helps us to understand because he says that all of you say the same thing. And then he says later in that same verse, All of you be united, there's our word united, in the same mind and the same judgment. So the idea of what unity is in the positive is this. Everyone says the same thing, the same speech, the same mind, the same judgment. Notice the word same is in in all of those. That's the key. We agree in speech, we agree in thinking, we agree in our judgment, we have the same. That's, That's unity as Paul lays it out. What is pointed out here is that doctrinal agreement within a local church is absolutely required. We must have doctrinal agreement to be unified. You can't have unity while you are divided doctrinally. Yet, although there is a minimum of doctrinal agreement required, Paul cannot be meaning here by these words that they had to agree on every jot and tittle, every tiny little point of doctrine in this church. The reason why everybody agrees that he cannot be meaning that they have to agree on every single thing is that for anyone to agree on every single thing means that there'd have to be less than two of you in the same room. And then you can't even have you and your old you in the same room. Like, if you're in the same room with you five years ago, would you agree with your, you wouldn't even agree with yourself on a lot of things. And so the idea of agreeing on every single thing cannot be the meaning of this. So the question comes when we read this, how much agreement is Paul referring to? So that's the key, and I've given you a hint at to my interpretive grid here. Everyone agrees... And some preachers might say, everyone agrees on everything in the church. We agree on everything. We've mapped it out, everything. Well, hardly, you know, that's not really true. So I'm saying that Paul is indicating here that everyone must say the same thing, same speech, same mind, same judgment on the gospel. I'll get to why I believe that in a minute. But I want to lay out for you some practical ideas of what this would look like in in our local church. Because we are not going to agree on every single point of every doctrine found in the Scripture, We have to find where doctrinal agreement is necessary to have biblical unity in a local church. And so in our church, we have a doctrinal statement called the New Hampshire Confession of Faith that we all as members must agree to. And we must agree to all of it. This is the foundational doctrinal statement of our church. And so if you were to join our church, or if you are a member and you were grandfathered in, when we changed our constitution and covenant and statement of faith to this document, then we're all saying we all agree on this. And it's not a very long document. 
It doesn't cover everything in the scripture. Why? Because as church members, we are not going to force everyone in here to agree on every point, but we are going to agree on these main points of the things we find most important, not only that include the gospel, but also the things that would have to be agreed on to be in close fellowship in this kind of context. And so we have that. Now, if you decide one day or if someday you are talked to and pointed out as a potential elder for our church, and then to be an elder in our church, you must agree to another document, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is far larger, far longer, far more doctrinal points. And why is that? Because on the leadership level and on the preaching and teaching level, we want to have unity, complete unity on way more than on the membership level. And we also realize that people come into membership as young Christians maybe undisciple Christians, newer Christians from other places, and, and we might not have everything worked out and wrestled through. But in a membership level, we have to agree on all these things. On a leadership level, we have to agree on all these things. And guess what? Even in that giant document of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, there are still things that aren't agreed upon, that are left open. And so on that, what do we do? We allow for differing positions, even among leadership. So we have to wrestle through this on a practical sense of what doctrinal unity looks like in a local church. He prizes true doctrine, but we understand what is vital for membership, what is vital for leadership, and what is not vital for either one of those things. And we have to learn how to do that in a congregation of even 80 people. How do we spend time together, even with disagreements doctrinally, and still have unity? Because some people think that unity means we agree on absolutely everything. And if you believe that, you will never be unified with anybody. Okay, so you're going to have to be able to be unified on what's most important. And if you're married for about three days, or if you've dated for three days, you recognize that you will be growing in unity your whole marriage. But there are non-negotiables and things you cannot disagree with to be unified at, in, 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 the, in the right sense. Everybody get me? So we're at with that. So notice, I don't believe Paul means complete unity, so what kind of unity is he talking about? Is he talking about the unity in a local church? Well, he is speaking to a local church. Is he talking about the unity uh, in, in all of the Christians in one town? Well, he is talking to all the Christians in one town. It's the Church of Corinth. It's not the First Baptist Church of Corinth as opposed to the Presbyterian Church of Corinth or the Second Baptist Church or the Third Baptist Church because you know the whole joke is that if you have a Baptist church in a town for any length of time, you end up with more than one Baptist church because of what I just started with. How many of you have been a part of a church split? And if I, if I, if I could tell jokes, I'd tell you the joke about the, the man they found on the island. They found the man on the island and he had two huts. And on it, one said the First Baptist Church and the Second Baptist Church. And they said, well, what happened? He said, well, I used to be a member at the First Baptist Church, but then I left and we split. And I'm now the started the Second Baptist Church. One guy on the island. That's Baptist for you. So that's an old joke, but there's some truth to it. So the idea is, what is he talking about here? Now, notice he gave the positive, the positive understanding of unity, but then he followed it up also with the negative. And that there be no divisions among you. No divisions. Everyone must agree, and agreement means same speech, same mind, same judgment, and there must be no divisions, the, the negative. No divisions, all agree. That's the opposite sides of what unity is. Now, I want to say this here, that disagreement is not the same as division. Are you, did you hear me clearly? Disagreement is not the same as division. Sometimes we have that idea 
that if we disagree on anything, then we just don't have unity. No, you can have unity as the Bible defines it while disagreeing on, I believe, a number of things. It just depends what are those things, how do you handle the disagreement, and, and to what level does that, does that go? So the idea here is that quarreling over doctrine would be different than disagreeing over doctrine. Have you been in a disagreement before? Have you been in a fight before? Do you know the difference? Every disagreement is not a fight. Every fight is definitely a disagreement. <laughs> and so the idea is we can be disagreeing on something, but we don't have to quarrel over it. That's what we're talking about. So Paul uses the word quarreling on purpose, and this is the kind of division he's talking about. Now, again, I talked about the context, and it's in this context that helps me, I believe, understand what kind of unity Paul is pointing to. He is pointing to a gospel unity. Why do I think that? Because when you get to verse 13, you see the specific questions he raises as to the nature of their division, or to the outflow, or to the problems of their division. Is Christ divided? Do we have different Christs, or in these factions, have we divided Christ up? You get the, the, the merciful Christ, and you get the just Christ, and you get the sacrificial Christ, and you get the, the great leader Christ. No, it, it, we, there's just one Christ. You get all of Christ, and every group should have all of Christ in that sense. But notice his second question. Was Paul crucified for you? So there's the heart of the gospel, the crucifixion. Who died on the cross for you? And then the outworking of that were you baptized in the name of Paul? So here we see gospel becomes the questions that he raises in light of this division. And notice verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to do what? Preach the gospel. So I connect in 13 to 17 that the agreement he's talking about and the division he's talking about are focused on the gospel. It's a gospel issue that he's referring to. So everyone should agree on the gospel, and we should have no divisions regarding the gospel. Now this is the kind of unity that includes all true Christians in a large city. The church at Corinth is the church in a city of around 700,000 citizens. That's a large city even by today's measure. Can you imagine if all, how many Christians are in the church of Corinth? We don't know exactly. I, I didn't look anything up or found anything. But there could have been thousands of Christians in one church. How do you keep thousands of Christians all saying the same thing, having the same mind, having the same judgment, this, the same discernment in a church that size, in a city that size? How do you have that? Well, because you can't agree on every single thing. And what happens is as history works its way out, is that in that church at Corinth over time, and I'm not talking about the church in Corinth specifically, but in a church in one city, when there become strong disagreements over particular points of doctrine that become problematic to those people staying unified in one location, in one church, what do they do? They divide over doctrine, and we have different denominations. And that didn't take place for a long time in one sense. But those are the challenges that the early church is working out. As their doctrinal understanding grows over centuries, sometimes it forces you to be in one camp versus the other camp, even among true Christians. And so the development of doctrine over centuries and the development of the necessity of having really strong agreement on certain issues puts us into different denominations, and then puts us into different local churches in different denominations, and we see that working out. And that's not a problem to unity. 
Why? Because I believe the unity that God is calling for, specifically what Paul is calling for here, is a gospel unity. It's a unity that transcends individual local churches in the same denomination, and even individual churches of different denominations that have the one true gospel. So this becomes important as we think through Paul is writing to one church in one large city. Therefore, how unified could they be and what kind of unity is he calling for? So that's why I put the in parentheses the idea of the gospel. How does unity work in the city of Owasso? We all want to be unified. All the Church of Christ, unified. How many different churches are there in Owasso? I don't know. How many different denominations? Some of you have been to some of these places. How many? How do we have unity as true Christians who have the true gospel in Owasso in these places? Because if we have to agree on baptism, we have to agree on the Lord's Supper and all the means, if we have to agree on eschatology, if we have to agree on all of these other things that are important, not unimportant, if we have to agree on all of those, how are we ever going to come together on anything? We're not. We're just going to stay separate doing our own thing because we cannot have unity because we're trying to find unity in all the points of doctrine. But we don't want a faux unity. We don't want a false unity that sets aside the true gospel for the sake of something that's not real. So you have, you have churches and denominations, and this is my history. So I'm going to, this is where I came from. We are so committed to having true doctrine and true fellowship around true doctrine and agreeing on so much that we become a silo in and of ourselves and we only fellowship with people mostly exactly like us, G-A-R-B-C. If you're a Garb church, we fellowship with Garb churches. Outside of that, we don't get much involved with anybody else because we're concerned about the wrong kind of ecumenical unity, the wrong kind. But it leaves us in a, what I, in a sense a silo. So in this in, in Owasso, we kind of do our own thing. We kind of we kind of stay to ourselves and we do all that, and we're not really involved much. And then we have the other side of uh, of, of unity, and this is the it doesn't matter what you believe on anything. We all just have to get along in Christ, and we got to find what what do we agree on? We agree that there's a Christ. Are you a Christian? Yes. There's a there's somebody named Christ who lived sometime, did something. We all agree on that. Let's all get together, and that's the ministerial association of Owasso. Yeah. Anybody's welcome of any stripe, any kind, anything. And notice that's the wrong kind of unity. They don't even care about whether they have a, a, a same gospel. They just want unity. Unity, at, in a sense, at all costs. We want doctrinal uh, consistency at all costs. So notice there's, there's two ends of the spectrum. Now, even the GARBC was not to the far end of the spectrum. Other churches, other Baptist churches particularly, were far more siloed than we were. But there's a, so there's a continuum. So I'm just going to be real, real honest and kind of just share some of these things here with you. you you're good with that, right? A little, little back, back, you know, get behind the scenes. Megan, you don't want behind the scenes today? No, like, move on. I don't, I don't want to hear it. Uh, so I went to a pastor's luncheon on Tuesday. Um, at this pastor's luncheon on Tuesday, there was, there was some Baptists. I wasn't the only Baptist. There were Baptists, I would say, to my right, if you want to use that language. Um, it's hard to get farther to the right than me, but there, there are some out there. Uh, Baptist to my right, uh, there was, a, I think, a Wesleyan or Methodist. They're, they're kind of the same. Um, there was a Nazarene. Um, there was a pastor from Life in Christ. There was a pastor from other places. There was, a, there was a wide range, Presbyterian as well. So we had a wide range of pastors. And we all got together to see if we could um, unify 
around the, uh, the prayer breakfast, the Owasso prayer breakfast uh, that comes on the National Day of Prayer. And as we're at this group with men who are um, more orthodox and, and more concerned with gospel unity than the Owasso Ministerial Association, which is filled with people who deny the deity of Christ, so that tells you how far off they are, um, here we are, and we're trying to see what we can unify around. And uh, so this is, you know, this people, you know, whatever, whoever sees this, is, let's talk about it. So one of the things that came up with that group is what do we unify around? Can we be unified? Can we work together on even the prayer breakfast? What level of unity can we have with people of such diverse denominational stripes? And what was said by a few people in the room over and over is, well, we agree that prayer is powerful. We agree that prayer is powerful. Prayer works. Can we all agree on that? Let's unite around prayer is powerful because we're going to do this prayer breakfast. And we have to all, if we can all agree on that, we can be united. I said, yeah, we might all agree to that. But let me say, if we, if we put that as the unifying figure, who would that leave out? It wouldn't leave out the Muslims. And it wouldn't leave out the Buddhists. And it wouldn't leave out the Roman Catholics. And it wouldn't leave out the Eastern Orthodox. And it wouldn't, who would it leave out? Because every religious person of any kind of strong religion believes that prayer to some kind of higher power has some sort of effect because they all do it. So that couldn't be the unifier, but some were saying that. So I had to speak up a little bit. I was, you know, you sit there, you're debating, what do I say? Do I just quietly walk out or cause a fuss? And I said, well, I just want to make sure we're, you know, in a sense, we're all going to pray to the same God. We have to agree on that. We have to be orthodox. Who, who is the God we're praying to? Because we can't, I said, I don't want anybody getting up praying to Mary. Okay, all right? And I use Mary on purpose because uh, I don't believe Roman Catholics are orthodox in, in, they, in the sense that they don't have a true gospel. So we can't have a Roman Catholic up front praying because they hold a Roman Catholic theology they do not believe in a true gospel. It doesn't mean that there are not many Roman Catholics who are saved, who believe in the true gospel, but they believe in it in opposition to the Roman Catholic doctrine, not in agreement with it. So well, let's kind of put some nuance into this. So, so as long as we're orthodox, and as long as we have the same gospel, now we can unite around prayer because we're all praying to the same God through the same Savior. And that is what is necessary for unity in this instance. Do we have the same God and the same gospel so that when we pray to the Father through the Son, we're all talking about the same person, <laughs> the same persons, and that we are dealing with this in an orthodox fashion? So with that... I can pray with the Presbyterian, I can pray with the Nazarene, I can pray with a Wesleyan or a Methodist, as long as they have those things, I can pray to the same God for many of the same things that we have in common because we have that in unity. But once we break outside of that, unity will not be true biblical unity because we will not have the same God or the same gospel. Do you see how this works? But we sometimes within our conservative, orthodox, fundamentalist backgrounds are so concerned about doctrinal purity that we won't get along with anybody or do anything with anybody. And so you've heard the old joke about the, the guy who's about ready to jump off the bridge and the other, don't, don't sigh. Did you guys hear that? My wife sighs because I butcher jokes. I'm not going to really tell the joke. I'm going to tell you about the joke and you can find the joke later. A guy standing on the bridge about to jump, a guy comes up and says, what are you going to do? Where are you going to jump? He says, oh, life is terrible and that. And he says, well, are you a Christian? He says, yes. He said, well, don't jump. You're a Christian. He says, are you a Baptist? Yes, I'm a Baptist. Oh, and then he goes through it all. And then he says, are you premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial? He says, premillennial. He goes, go ahead and jump. <laughs> okay, bad joke. 
What we're saying is, sometimes we're so concerned about this that we will all of a sudden, we will work so hard at unity that we'll finally work so hard to find the one thing we disagree on so we can't ever do anything together. This kind of unity is vital, not only in a local church, but it's vital for outside of it. And I want to bring these things up and spend a lot of time on this because it's really practical, really important right now. If we as a church are going to have an impact on Owasso, on Shiawassee County, the 80 of us working really hard are not going to make much of a difference in the immediate future. But if we can unify with other true Christians, with true gospel, to do some things together that we can agree on, we can have a much greater impact much sooner by God's grace. It's going to force us outside of our normal settings, including myself and our elders and maybe you as well, but we have to think through that clearly and accurately or we will make mistakes. We will make mistakes, and we will make mistakes that are dangerous on both sides. And so we have to be clear on this. And so I'm laying out that Paul is saying here that the unity is a gospel unity even in this local church. Now, it's a local church bigger than what we would conceive of because it's the only church in town. And therefore, they only have uh, one set there. So let's walk through the text, all right? More than we were doing just then. What's next in the text? Well, the report of quarreling in the Corinthian church. So Paul's appeal to unity comes on the heels of the fact that he's heard that there's quarreling in this church. Chloe's people had reported this to Paul. Now, Paul hadn't heard this from their letter that they sent him, probably because they didn't want him to know what was going on. Have you ever not put things in a letter to mom and dad because you didn't want them to know, but then your little brother or sister came and visited you at college, and they go home and tattle on you, and all of a sudden you get a phone call about things that they have to deal with, and you didn't, you weren't going to let them know, but someone tattled on you. Now, Chloe's people might be nice people. They might not have been tattling, but that's how I read it. All right. Not that that ever happened to me, just letting you know that. Now, when I see quarreling, it reminds me of the fact that quarreling is a, f- a family activity. Quarreling is what families do, right? You guys understand how this works? Have you ever been in a quarrel? Who have you quarreled with most in your life, family or non-family? <laughs> so quarreling is a family activity, especially among brothers and sisters, All the time, you're always fighting. Mom will say, I don't even know if you love each other, you fight so much. My father had the bright idea one time when I was a little kid. We were fighting so much, he took me and my older brother into the kitchen. He opened up the knife drawer and gave us both a butcher knife and said, if you guys want to fight, go at it. That's on tape and that's real. That's real. It's one of the things I do remember, even though I don't remember much. Now, of course, he trusted that we would do what we did. We both started crying because we're like, I don't want to kill him. I act like I want to kill him, but I really don't want to kill him. Now, my older brother, I'm not sure where he was on this, but I think he cried as well. Uh, <laughs> but I was ready as I cried. <laughs> so the idea here is it's a, it's a family activity, and quarreling doesn't actually indicate that you're not family. Many times quarreling is an indicator that you are family. Now, when I say that, I don't want to say that it's a good thing. It's just an indicator. So notice again, Paul, when he brings up the quarreling, he says, my brother's. It's been reported among you there's quarreling, my brothers. He's he's not saying there's quarreling, I'm not sure you're brothers. I'm not sure you have the same. No, it's quarreling, my brother. He brings that up again to confirm them as Christians in the same family. And so quarreling is a relationship distinctive among family members, but that doesn't mean that quarreling is good or healthy or right. So I'm not giving any of you kids a, a pass on fighting with your brothers and sisters. Well, pastor said that's what families do. Yes, to their own detriment and destruction. 
So knock it off. All right, but it does happen in families most importantly. So the expression of their fighting, what's the expression of their argument? The expression of their argument is this, boasting in the man that you follow. So Paul lays out what they're arguing over or how they were speaking their argument. So do you follow Paul, who was the church planner at Corinth? Do you follow Apollos, the first full-time pastor of the church? Or maybe you follow Cephas, who's also better known as Peter, the lead apostle. Or are you too spiritual for any of those groups and you simply follow Christ? The majority of people in this church were all picking a side. They were all grouping up based upon this indication. And they were grouping up based upon one thing. They were grouping up on this idea of who is the greatest teacher of wisdom? Who is the greatest teacher of wisdom? Whoever I think is the wisest, most eloquent teacher of wisdom, that's the man I follow. And that shows up in verse 17 as well. So why do I say it's based upon this? Is because the gospel is being contrasted with words of eloquent wisdom. And in Corinth, wisdom was highly praised, and these people seem to have a real high view of wisdom, as we will see in the next chapter and a half. Paul's going to correct them in their understanding of wisdom. And so they are saying, who's the wisest? Who's, well, was Paul the wisest, or Cephas, or Apollos, or, you know, Christ? Of course, Christ is the wisest. Why don't we follow him? So the idea here is what happens on the playground. You start talking about your dad. And then the other kid says, well, my dad is smarter, bigger, faster, taller than your dad. And is it a real competition between the dads? Or is it a competition between the sons? Because whoever's dad is better will then mean what? You're better. That's this. Right? That's what you got to see. I follow Paul, which makes us better. You follow Cephas, not as good. We're better. And that was the argument. Who's the best preacher? Who's the best writer, theologian, philosopher? I follow, fill in the blank for you. And if we get into a debate over something, an argument, why well, say, well, I learned from great man of God. And you say, well, I learned from great man of God. And we have to put our gods, you know, great man of God up against each other to see who's, which one of us is right. It's not about them, it's about us. So this points to the idea of what's really going on here. None of these men are encouraging this. Paul didn't encourage it. Apollos didn't encourage it. Peter didn't encourage it. These men are not, and of course, Christ wouldn't encourage this. This is something they're doing to abuse these men and to use these men for their own gain. And the reason I say this specifically is because you would think that Christ is the right answer, wouldn't you? Who do you follow? Well, don't we follow Christ? You would get to this and you say, certainly the, the, the group, the, the, the faction with Christ is the right faction, but he lumps them in with all the other bad groups. He doesn't say, some of you say this, some of you say that, some of you say that, and by the way, you should be saying this. No, he says, some of you say this, and they're all divided. So the followers who are saying, we follow Christ, they're a part of the problem as well. And the reason that is, is because here's the problem. Boasting in any spiritual leader to elevate your own status is the problem. Boasting in any spiritual leader to elevate your own status in the church is a problem. So that's the nature of their argument. The nature of their argument is spiritual elitism. Of course Christ is better than Paul. No one's disagreeing with that theologically, but the reason the group of Christ is saying that is because they want to get a leg up on the people in the other groups. It's spiritual elitism in the boasting in who you follow. 
And all of the spiritual leadism was connected to the Corinthians' focus and love for eloquent wisdom, verse 17. Whoever they thought most exemplified the use of eloquent wisdom was the man that they followed. They were only using Christ as a means to elevate themselves in their elite status as the followers of the greatest, wisest uh, philosopher of the time, and that's Christ. So notice the problem. Now, thirdly, we see the absurdity of division in the church. The absurdity of division. Division in the church is, first of all, theologically absurd. It's theologically absurd. And that's what Paul deals with in verse 13. Division is theologically absurd because it undermines and threatens the truth. Division in a church threatens the very nature of the gospel itself. Division gets to the heart of the gospel and threatens the true gospel. And that's why Paul asks the questions he asks in verse 13. Is Christ divided? And the answer to that is no. There's only one Messiah. There's only one Christ. You can't divide Christ, and nor can you divide the body of Christ. There's only one Christ. There's only one body of Christ. There's no division. That kind of division, to think of it that way, is absurd. And then he asks the next question. Was Paul crucified for you? What's the answer to that? And you can put any of the guys in there, Apollos, Cephas. None of them were crucified for the Corinthians. There's only one means of salvation. The crucifixion of whom? Jesus Christ. No apostle, no church planner, no pastor ever died for your sins. So your favorite preacher, pastor, or theologian isn't the Messiah. He didn't save you. Quit acting like he is. Read the theology, listen to podcasts, respect men, learn from men, learn from those people, but don't make them your all in all, your be all and end all. Do not do that, anyone, because sooner or later you will come across something that you disagree with them on. You will find they have feet of clay, every one of them. And so you have to be very careful. So this is the idea that we have to understand this, the gospel. One Messiah, one means of salvation. But notice, was anyone baptized in the name of Paul? Well, we can see in just a few minutes, in the next verses, no, they were never baptized in the name of Paul. Even if he baptized them, he didn't baptize them in his name. He baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As, as they were taught in, in the Gospels, he probably baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the name of the triune God. So what he's saying here is that there's only one means of public proclamation of your salvation. You don't proclaim your salvation in the name of any apostle or any teacher or any theologian. No, you proclaim your salvation in the, bat, in the name of the triune God. No Christian is ever baptized in the name of their Christian mentor. Not if they're a true Christian, they're not. So it's theologically absurd. Secondly, it's practically absurd. If every one of the Corinthian believers was baptized in the name of Christ, and no one was baptized in the name of Paul or any other man, then how could they say, I follow Paul? The person performing the baptism had nothing to do with it. Are you clear? That's why, when I wasn't able to be here a couple Sundays ago, we allowed Frank Dvorak to baptize Shelley Haight. Because you don't have to have the senior pastor or even an elder to baptize in a local church. It was just as valid to have, you know, the second in command 
<laughs> you know, Frank, it's just as valid because we didn't baptize in the name of Frank, did we? No. Had nothing to do with the person putting the person under the water. We can do that. That's not the point. And so it's not about who baptizes more or how many people do I baptize or who has the authority to baptize. The church has the authority to baptize under the leadership and rule of the elders. But that's not required. It's not, it's not held on to that only certain people can baptize because we're not baptizing in their name. But because of this division over these things, guess what? Paul was actually thankful that he had baptized only a few of them. Can you imagine that? An apostle saying, I'm actually glad I didn't baptize very many of you. What? Baptisms are one of the most wonderful things that ever happened in a local church. There's no greater joy than being at a baptism. No doubt. There's no greater joy than performing a baptism, not because you're the one doing it in the sense of it's something about you, but it's a joy to be a part of it because this is the public proclamation of the, of the salvation and the transformation of sinners. And now Paul's saying, I'm glad I wasn't doing that very often. What? That doesn't make any sense, but it does make sense because of how the Corinthians were using it. These quarrels about who baptized more people and therefore who was the more important spiritual leader took the focus off the mission. Took the focus off the mission. Who baptized more? Who had more baptisms? Who led more people to Christ? Who has the bigger church? That takes the focus off the mission. Paul never wanted to be a source of distraction from the mission. And this tells us something very important. Division distracts. Division distracts. When we break into factions, when we divide, when we quarrel, it takes us off mission. So let's let her see. Division distracts. Distracts us from the primary mission. Notice the word primary is important. And the primary mission, according to Paul, is to preach the gospel. He goes, the reason this is such a problem is because Christ didn't send me to baptize, verse 17. He sent me to preach the gospel. It's not about how many baptisms you have. It's about are you faithful to the mission of proclaiming the gospel? And of course, by God's grace, that will lead into the conversion of sinners, and that will lead into the baptism of those converted. Of course, that's great news. But we didn't come to count baptisms. There's a lot about it. This count the baptisms. We've got to, how many baptisms did we have? Like that, That's not necessarily necessarily in and of itself a show of success. But you think that's a problem today? Yeah, it's a problem today. You think it started a long time ago, let's say, uh, Corinthian Church? It's been around for 2,000 years. You count baptisms, you count professions of faith, you count all these things to demonstrate success, and therefore you can demonstrate who the best leader is, who the most wise pastor is by their great success. And we do it today. You want to be successful? You find a guy with a big church and you let him write a book about how he got successful and you should follow it too. I've been writing a book here at Calvary Baptist Church for 13 years, How to Shrink a Church. I tell the pastor's fellowship all the time, how are things going? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm on the next chapter of How to Shrink a Church. Pretty much since I've been here, we've done nothing but shrink. And you guys are still here, so I don't know what this says about you guys. You definitely fall in the wrong guy. I mean, that's the nature of it. And I don't boast in that like I'm happy that we shrink. I'm just saying, it, what does that indicate? What does that prove? I don't know what it proves. I know what I used to think of as the 25-year-old that it proved, which is why God was gracious to not letting me be a senior pastor at 25, 
Because I had my eyes on the wrong people for the wrong reasons, and we would then do the wrong things. I would lead the church to do the wrong things because I thought you could be like McDonald's, and you could say one restaurant, if it works there, we can now multiply the franchise, and we can have all these franchises. And that, that is still a model, not just within uh, the church growth movement, but within evangelicalism and even reformed evangelicalism, whereby we have this idea that we can all just reproduce the same things, and the same things are the wrong things. We don't take for granted the gospel as the central thing. Doctrine is the central thing. We build a church around those things and the proper preaching and teaching of those things and the other things, especially the music and the dress style and the preaching style and how many programs we have, those are all way, 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 way down the road. But most churches, they plant and they do these things and they find success by focusing on those things and everyone just assumes the preaching is going to be good, the gospel is going to be good, the doctrine is going to be good, and they miss all that. Because they're promoting and they're working on building out franchisee owners instead of gospel elders and gospel preachers. And that's not even in my notes. But we have to get it right. So let me say this. If the primary mission is preaching the gospel, and Paul says, God did not send him to baptize, is baptizing believers unimportant? Should we not baptize? Is that what Paul's saying? Well, let me say this. Catch this. If baptize, baptize, let me say it better. If baptism was a means of salvation, this wouldn't make any sense. I didn't understand how great a passage this was for destroying uh, baptismal regeneration until this week. I've never heard anybody use this passage as a destruction of the baptismal regeneration argument. But if baptism was a means, a necessary means or a component of salvation, could Paul have said that? God did not send me to baptize. He couldn't say that. He'd have to say, God sent me to baptize. First of all, preach the gospel, but then I had to baptize as well. This destroys baptismal regeneration because baptism is not necessary for salvation. It's not primary, and if it was, he could not have made this argument. If baptism was a necessary activity to be cleansed of your sins, this wouldn't make any sense. But let me say this for us. Baptism is important. It is very important, but it is not primary. It is secondary. The preaching of the gospel is primary because of its vital role in the salvation of sinners. Preaching is necessary for the salvation of sinners. Baptism isn't. Preaching comes before, before salvation. Baptism comes after. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have not yet been baptized, then you have not yet been obedient to the call of Christ to follow the Lord in believer's baptism and proclaim your salvation publicly. You need to do that. It's important. It's not unimportant, but it's not primary. It's very important, but it's not primary, and we have to understand the difference so that we can preach and teach the Bible accurately. So if you have not yet been baptized, be baptized. Do it for the right reasons, understand what you're doing, and understand it's vital and important. And it is here that we come to the idea of eloquent wisdom, and I've talked about that. The idea is that baptisms got connected to the person with the most eloquent wisdom, had the most successful ministry, and therefore would have the most baptisms. And Paul says, I did not come and preach with eloquent wisdom, so don't judge my ministry based upon eloquent wisdoms or how many baptisms, because it's not about those things. It's about the direct proclamation of the preaching of the gospel. And that's just, the, just a glimpse of his argument, and he's going to flesh all that out later, but it's all in response to divisions. It's all in response to divisions. But let me tell you why the preaching of the gospel is so important. Why it is primary, why it is vital. It's because most Christians have heard this gospel promise, Romans 10, 13. For everyone who, hears, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Almost every Christian has heard that promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We believe that promise? Is that a gospel promise? 
We cling to that promise, right? Very important. Many Christians have also heard the method of salvation connected to this gospel promise, which comes earlier in the passage, verses 9 through 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does that mean, to call on the name of the Lord? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So we get a better understanding of what he meant by that promise, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, by the verses earlier. So it fleshes out what that means. But these two vitally important passages are followed up by another vital truth, verses 14 and 15. It says this, How then will they call on him in who they have not believed? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how do they call if they haven't believed? And how are they to believe in him in who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Do you see the argument? So where does preaching come in? You don't see baptism there at all, do you? But you do see preaching. You see sending. The preacher is sent. The proclaimer is sent, the preaching is given, the person hears, and then they believe, and then they call. How vital is the proclamation of the gospel? It is absolutely necessary to the salvation of souls. Now be careful, it's not just the preaching in a pulpit, it's not just preachers who preach, this is the gospel proclamation that can be given one-on-one, -on -one. it can be written down and given, it can be sent in a letter, it can be put on Facebook, it can be proclaimed vocally, so we're not just talking about speech. But when Paul wrote that, all you could do was either speak it or write it. You didn't have all those other means. But this is the idea that the proclamation of the gospel is vital. Now, the question here is what are you saved from? All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in, the, in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, saved, saved. We use it all the time. What do we mean? We have to ask the question, saved from what? Saved from the penalty of your sin. The penalty of your sin is God's wrath and eternal punishment in hell. Saved from the power of your sin. Your complete inability to stop sinning and obey God's law. Your complete inability to do what is right and reap the rewards of obedience. You have to be saved from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And also saved from the presence of sin. The fact that a change of behavior wouldn't be enough but that you need a transformation of your mind, thinking, your desires, wanting, your will, choosing. This is what salvation provides. Salvation provides the internal change, the transformation that gets fleshed out in your life. And then through that, saves you from the penalty of God's wrath and judgment in hell and breaks the power of sin that it has in your life to make you able to obey God. You're saved from all of those things. This is why Jesus died and rose again so that all who call upon his name will be saved in all three of those ways. Saved from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. And that's the transformational gospel that is broader and bigger than just a bold confession that just wants out of hell. Yes, you should want out of hell. But just professing that without having the true confession of Christ as Lord and Savior and the understanding of what that means will not bring the transformation necessary because it's not a full gospel. And so we have to understand the gospel. We must preach the gospel. Jesus Christ came 
not to save you just from the penalty, but from all those other things, to transform your life and make you a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And you live that out in, in, in flesh in your life as you obey him and follow him as Lord of your life. And things are, are different. That's salvation. That's salvation. So in closing, what do we need to do? Jesus Christ is the only Savior. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved today. That's for you if you're not a believer. Jesus Christ is the only Savior. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. That's God's promise. Now as a church, we need to be united in the gospel and in the primary mission of preaching the gospel. We want to make an impact and have an influence in every sphere that we have contact with, every sphere. But if we misunderstand our primary mission, we will make grave mistakes as a church. I'm preaching to myself, I'm preaching to our elders, and I'm preaching to you. We must keep gospel proclamation as the primary mission. Our primary mission is not to save babies alive from abortion. We preach the gospel at abortion mills and we support the Pregnancy Resource Center so that mothers and fathers will come to Christ and be saved and then not kill their children. So gospel proclamation is the most important thing we do in any of those cases. It's not simply the saving of lives, which of course is vital and important. And we praise God for any life saved for any reason. God uses all kinds of broken means to accomplish his purpose. But also, we want to influence the political sphere here in our town. We want to get rid of public celebrations of immorality. But that is not our primary mission. Our primary mission is to preach the gospel to broken people who are portraying their brokenness in the most vile ways publicly. That's how broken it is. So we go there and we preach the gospel. We want to see change and transformation, but we preach the gospel on those occasions because that is what we need to do. And therefore, any gospel unity, any true unity in this town among Christians must keep the gospel at the forefront because if not, we might accomplish great things in the short run at the expense of the gospel and we lose the real thing that we need to build civil society on, which is the gospel. Lord Jesus Christ as the ruler and king of all things. And so notice how that works out. We must keep that in mind. The preaching of the true gospel is our only hope for true ecumenical unity. I want ecumenical unity but I want it to be biblical and right, and it has to be on the gospel proclamation. There will be no unity in the body of Christ if there is not unity in the true gospel and in the primacy of its proclamation. If we're going to unify on a prayer breakfast, we need to be able to pray the gospel and proclaim the gospel in our prayers primarily as the first front. If we have to limit the proclamation of the gospel just to all get along, get together, then we've lost the point, and there's no need in it. If we're going to go downtown and protest or go to the Capitol and protest, if we don't lead with the gospel, we go for the wrong thing. We have to lead with the gospel. And if someone says, well, we don't want to shut out other people who agree with us who don't believe in Christ. We don't want to set, shut off the conservatives who are uh, atheistic conservatives or secular conservatives. No, we cannot have that. We might see them as co-belligerents, but we're going to lead with the gospel. And if, if, if shutting the gospel door shuts the gospel door, then we have to stay out of that. And so this is the idea of we might share much in common with Roman Catholics, but we differ on the gospel so you might go to the abortion mill and the Roman Catholics will be protesting over here and we'll be protesting over here because we'll protest with the gospel and they won't. And so we can't, we can't cooperate and have unity on that level because we'll lose the gospel. And you've got to keep... These, uh, there's a lot there. 
And I could keep going, um, but Lord have mercy. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, these are important topics. They're important to us as a local church that we might be unified biblically in the right ways. We could have differences, but not quarrels. And more than that, it's really an indicator of how we can have unity as Christians in this town, in this county. Lord, there are true Christians in dozens of churches. There do- I don't know how many churches for sure that have the true gospel. They are orthodox. We might disagree on a number of things. Lord, how can we work together? How can we be unified in the right way to accomplish the right things for your name's sake? Lord, these are challenges. These are hard things. And we need your wisdom. We need to pray and work and think that we do the right thing. So, Lord, be with us. And most importantly, Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know Christ as Lord, is not a part of the family, is not a brother or sister, may you save their soul today. May they cry out to you, call upon the name of the Lord, and receive that salvation for your name. In Jesus' name, amen.